For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Thursday, October 12th. Back in the CD era, one of the first things I would do when I bought one was to look at these songwriting credits. I was always curious which of my favorite artists actually wrote their own songs, or if it was a band, how the members divvied up the credits. Those credits are incredibly important in determining who gets paid what. If you're not familiar, every piece of recorded music generates two separate copyrights. There's one for the sound recording, that's the audio itself, or the masters as they're called. Those rights usually belong to the record label or the artist if they have the leverage and a good lawyer. Then there's a separate songwriting copyright. That's for the melody and lyrics, the composition of the song. And here's where it gets a little confusing. There are actually two elements of royalties that are paid when a composition is performed publicly or played on a streaming service or even something you hear in a bar. First is the publishing royalties. Those are usually paid to a publisher of the music on behalf of the artist. And then there's a separate songwriter royalty that goes directly to the writer of the composition. So why am I breaking this all down? I want to show that it really matters who the credited writer or writers are on a hit song. And to set up the fact that there are often some really nasty fights that go on behind the scenes over who wrote what song. Some genres of music like hip hop or pop, they can have dozens of credited writers on a single song thanks to samples or guest rappers. We saw that on the Beyonce album last year. I just looked at the new Drake and some tracks have 10 or so writers. With all the new technology also, it's easy to check if a new song sounds similar to something else, maybe too similar. That's what we're talking about today. Did you ever wonder why Taylor Swift and her collaborators suddenly got a writing credit on two Olivia Rodrigo songs? Those are called non-collaborative credits. It's a very nice way of saying they're basically to settle potential legal disputes over authorship. It's a pretty big deal in music. These cases can get very complicated. You've got to prove the songs are substantially similar that the artist had access to the previous song. I worked on a couple of these cases when I was a lawyer. Everyone from Katy Perry to Led Zeppelin have been involved in major litigation. Ed Sheeran recently beat a case over a Marvin Gaye song. And there was the famous Blurred Lines case over another Marvin Gaye song that went to trial. Usually artists want to avoid that public fight and they're happy to give a credit. Sam Smith gave Tom Petty a credit on his hit Stay With Me, which does sound a lot like I Won't Back Down. Bruno Mars added two sets of writers to his hit, Uptown Funk. There are tons that don't make the headlines, too. And today's guest is involved in a lot of those. 
Howard King is the managing partner of the King Holmes firm in L.A. and an expert in music litigation. He actually represented Pharrell and Robin Thicke in that Blurred Lines case. Today, we're going to go over some of the legal issues and some of the interesting behind-the-scenes fights over music songwriting credits. It's Taylor, Olivia, song-stealing, how similar is too similar? And is there really a way to police all this stuff? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. We are here with Howard King, who is the managing partner of the King's Home Law Firm in Los Angeles and a music industry expert and a trial lawyer. So I wanted to have you in today to talk about this issue of songwriting credits. It's come up a lot. The Olivia Rodrigo album, you know, people are coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, you know, she's taken this from this writer. She this sounds very similar to that. But I want you to take me through the process here. How does a an album submitted by an artist to a label get vetted to make sure that everyone is properly credited on the songwriting credits? The people in the writing room generally know who wrote the song. In rock and roll, it's easy. In pop music, it's a little more difficult because there may be contributions that come from people 3,000 miles away. Yeah, or a B, I mean, the Beyonce example where there's 40 credited writers on a song because she takes beats from here, she takes lyrics, she takes different sounds and then puts them together and you got to figure out how to credit those 40 writers. Exactly. So the record label, when they take delivery of a soundtrack, spends a lot of time trying to find out everybody who participated in the creation of that album and make sure they get clearances from them. And those clearances often involve crediting those other people with either some songwriting credit or producer credit, basically something that's going to turn into income from them if the song sells. The difficulty for record labels is if they're not told who participated right. or which is more likely on the topic we're discussing, if something was borrowed, quote unquote, from an earlier song that the artist or the producer doesn't really acknowledge having done. So the record label doesn't know about it. But is there a sound analysis done to an album by the label to compare it against previous works to say, oh, this sounds similar to a Lady Gaga song. We may have an issue here. Yes, but you can't give it too much credit. There's not a computer program that does it. <laughs> the recording industry doesn't have a database that every album is submitted to that you know spits out an analysis of the music. That, that doesn't exist. That doesn't exist to my knowledge. So what you have is very knowledgeable people at the record label listening to it. And a lot of times they'll go, hey, this sounds like this. If they're really concerned, um, they'll hire a musicologist. And the musicologist will look at the progression of chords, the sounds used. I mean, you guys use experts like that in the Blurred Lines trial, I remember. These people are experts in figuring out what sounds like what something else and whether th that was intentional. They look to see if the notes are substantially similar or the melody is substantially similar. Obviously, somebody looks to see if the lyrics are substantially similar. Sure. Sounds like is not supposed to be part of the test. Sounds like is something that precedes the musicologist. 
If something sounds like something, then you look to see if it's really the same because many, many songs sound alike. Yeah. But they're not copies. I mean, what the record label is looking for and what the artist should be looking for is either a, an actual copying where there's substantial similarity or whether it's close enough that there's a litigation risk, even if it's probably not an infringement. Interesting. And how much does the access element of infringement, meaning you had access to this material, does that, that's one of the pillars of copyright infringement, but is it just presumed that everybody has access to every piece of recorded music in the world now? No, Uh, and you're right. The two pillars of a copyright claim are access and substantial similarity. Everybody in the world has access to Taylor Swift. So yes, that would be presumed. But a, a lot of the copyright cases are somebody who said, hey, I recorded this song and I sent it to Universal Music. So therefore, one of their artists must have had access to it. So many cases actually get thrown out on the access element. Right. Was that an issue in the Led Zeppelin case? If I recall, I think they argued that they didn't even know what the infringing music was. It was, but, you know, the the song in that case by Spirit charted. It it was played on the radio where the Led Zeppelin guys live. So I don't think ultimately access is what won the case. It was the lack of substantial similarity. Right. So what you're mentioning, there are elements that can prove access, whether it was charting on the Billboard charts where the artists were at the time had access yeah. or it was on TV or something in the radio. It's just more difficult now, I feel like, because if you have a Spotify subscription, that's potentially access to everything. Yeah. Well, I, I had a case against a Grammy-winning song where the plaintiff's song never was released, but it turns out that the plaintiff recorded their song in the same studio where this famous band recorded their music and they happened to be in the studio at the same time. Oh. And that was enough access. That's pretty good evidence. All right. So let's go back here. The label does an analysis. They, their internal checklist. They say, okay, this album is cleared. We're good. Let's put it out there. And then the claims start coming in. What happens then? The first thing the record label does is go to the artist and said, under your indemnification clause, you need to defend and take care of this. Interesting. So even if you didn't mean to, they say, we have no idea what the song is. I don't even like Taylor Swift. I, I don't know what, you know what she's talking about. They say, this is your problem. You have agreed to indemnify us and fix it. Right. Now, Universal generally will not trust the artist to just take care of them. Universal will hire their own lawyers and then charge it back. I mean, listen, an artist of the stature of Led Zeppelin can afford to hire their own lawyers and and they had a very good lawyer, but ultimately everybody tries to charge it back to the artist. It's the artist's responsibility to deliver a cleared album. So in the situation where this claim was apparently made by Taylor Swift against Olivia Rodrigo, she made the decision. The artist made the decision to credit her. Well, from what I read, I didn't even see that a formal complaint was ever filed. So No, no, no. It just popped up that the song that was released without the Taylor Swift writing credit, I believe it's a couple songs, all of a sudden had one. This is not as unusual as it seems. There are initial writing credits, and then usually in the clearance process, 
there's additional writing credits when you discover that maybe they did interpolate somebody else's music. Yeah, and, and I'm just trying to get at the question of what factors are relevant. If you are comparing these two songs side by side, what is the button you push that says, okay, we are giving this person a credit? Is there something that you as an expert would hear or see that would cause you to say, give them a credit? Or is it politics? Is it the pressure being put on the label? Or is it all of it? Well, I can't speak to the politics. I mean, I'm familiar because I've read the press on this. But, but you've probably dealt with similar situations where the artist, or whoever's complaining, says, we're going to go public. And have you seen my platform? I have 50 million Instagram followers. Would you like me to say that you're a thief? Okay, pay me. It's interesting that the concept of copyright infringement gets conflated with thievery. That, <laughs> that's a good concept for plaintiff's lawyers. But it's really a civil case. I mean, if you copied somebody's music, even if it was completely unintentional, like George Harrison and My Sweet Lord, you're liable for copyright infringement. You pay damages. You don't go to jail. But you get what I'm saying. You, yeah. I, I want to know the factors here behind the scenes. You've dealt with okay. many of these. What are the things that come up? Where are the negotiation points? Like wh What goes on behind the scenes? Obviously, as you previously mentioned, access. And at least in the uh, Olivia situation, she had access, even I think perhaps before Taylor's records were released. Then you do the sound-alike test, which, as I understand it, people think in both of these circumstances, they sound alike. And then you really have to get down and see if there are substantially similar elements, notes and melody. The chords shouldn't matter. I mean, there are a limited number of chords. I mean, actually, in Led Zeppelin, it was a chord progression, mm -hmm. and the jury just rejected it. So it's really the notes and the melody. So I would assume before you get to politics and PR, somebody, I think you can safely assume, made a claim that obviously, because of the politics and the exposure, got a major investigation. And I'm sure they hired the top musicologist. I could almost guess who it is. He's a professor yeah. emeritus at NYU. By the way, great title. I'd love to be called a musicologist. That's a great title. Yeah. So they either found substantial similarity, meaning notes matched notes, or they thought it was so close that a claim could prevail and they'd spend a lot of money defending it. That's on the legal side. The politics are, does this young, immediately successful artist want to be branded a copyright infringer, especially a copyright infringer of someone who's apparently America's sweetheart? Apparently? How dare you? How dare you say apparently? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that would be... I'm sure you have a Travis Kelsey jersey on right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So the politics are are pretty clear here. Like, you, yeah. no one wants to piss off Taylor Swift. I think the even the suggestion that she might go public with this would cause me to crap my pants and say, "Whatever you want, we will credit you." I think that's right. But why was? I mean, I, I guess we can't jump inside her head. But like, why does Taylor Swift care? Well, first off, there's other people than Taylor Swift. There are sure. writers and producers who... And she's standing have, up for those people, yes. Yeah, and they have their independent claims. So we don't know if they didn't make the claim.
that is the most high profile of situations and an easy calculus if you're Olivia Rodrigo or her team just give her the credit last thing she wants is a fight with someone who she has said she idolizes and you know it could potentially derail all the momentum that she has built but give us the more typical claim and what the calculus is on the typical claims where it's you know maybe not a huge selling album and it's someone that comes out and says, oh, this is mine. Give me a credit here. What are those negotiations like? Do people get mostly get paid off? Or can you pay someone off for a... All the time. But are you allowed to essentially contract around a copyright claim? 100%. You can do that. Okay. 100%. Listen, I don't know this area. I'm not an expert in this area. You are. Well, Matt, you used to be when you practiced law. Like I, 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 this, That was a while ago. And I didn't have that many cases. We mostly dealt with like royalty disputes that were not involving these kinds of songwriting copyright issues. So this is really a contract issue. I mean, whether you think it's morally right, you can go to somebody and say, I'll give you 20% of this song for taking the trash out. That's legal. There's That's legal? It's funny, you can't do that in the film and television context. A producer can't go to a writer and say, you know what, I'd like to have a credit on this screenplay. I'll give you $5 million. Right. But you're conflating credit with money. Sure. I'm not sure the guy that comes in cares about the credit. I mean, again, I would want to be credited on a Taylor Swift song. That's a good career move. But Mm -hmm. we're really talking about the money. Remember, we have works for hire in the business where I could hire a writer to write a song under a work for hire agreement where I would get the copyright. But you wouldn't get the credit on the song. Or maybe you would. I, if, can Taylor Swift say, hey, songwriter, please write me a song that I will then call a Taylor Swift original written by me? There's precedent for that. Not she can her. do that? I, I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not saying she I, does do that. I'm not suggesting she does that. But there is a history of very famous singers demanding a songwriting credit at the threat of not releasing the song. But isn't that typically a co-credit? Yeah. But we're okay, but I, what I'm talking about is erasing the actual writer from the picture. Is that allowed? It's a matter of contract. It, as disgusting as that is, it's a huh. matter of contract. Now, I don't believe anything anymore. If money solves credits in music, then what's to say that everybody can't be bought out and that every single Taylor Swift song that she has her name on isn't her just paying off. So I'm not, I'm not harping on Taylor Swift. I'm, you know, I, I know she's very talented as a songwriter, but like any artist, Beyonce, Adele, if you can just buy your songwriting credits, then why should we believe anything? It's horrible for the reputation of the buyer in that circumstance. I mean, no artist really wants to be known for doing that. They would, it's the same visceral reaction you had about how wrong that is. You're talking within the community. If everybody in Nashville knew that Morgan Wallen was not writing songs and he was just paying the real songwriters to provide him songs, that he would suffer in the community. It's Millie Vanilli. (laughs) Well, that's that takes it one step further. That's you know that's that's no, no, but it's the same. It's the same idea. Is the artistic community doesn't like fakers, right? So it sort of self polices, is what you're saying. Yeah. But again, you ask the question in the context of what happens when a claim is made. We pay 
off claims at 10, 20, 50, $100,000 all the time. And whether we think there's merit or not, sometimes it's just the cost of doing business and it's cheaper than the legal fees. There's frequently insurance for this, which helps. Oh, interesting. I imagine if you are a big hip hop star, I mean, you've repped Dre, Eminem. I imagine people must come out of the woodwork with saying, oh, I created that beat. Oh, you know, this lyric was in this club. It must happen all the time. Within the last year, I've had copyright infringement claims on NWA songs. No way. From the 80s? Yeah. I get Tupac claims all the time. Tupac died in 1996. So it's a whole business. There's a whole plaintiff's bar. But by the way, it's all in hip hop. I I was going to say in hip hop, it feels like a feeding ground because of the nature of the music and the amalgamation of beats and different sounds and rhythms. It must it must be a nightmare for people like you. Well, and it used to be that sampling was blessed in hip hop. I had claims going back to uh, way way long. It's just they keep coming. All right. So that's the illicit stuff. That's the stuff that people don't want sampled. Most often, an artist that samples something will do it legally. We'll get clearance for the use of that. What does the revenue split on a song look like when an artist, like, let's say, like a Nicki Minaj, when she takes a Sir Mix-A-Lot song and takes the key out of that? What is the revenue split on those kinds of songs with a very formidable sample in them? The rule of thumb is, Half the royalties go to the lyrics and half go to the music. Right. So if a substantial sample was taken, that I presume that would be of the music, not the lyrics. I assume Nikki created her own lyrics. But yes. under that hypothesis, so you got 50% to deal with. If it's really a substantial sample, if it's the hook of the song, he's going to ask for the whole 50% and would probably settle for half. There's a very famous case, the Eminem song, Stan, we represent Eminem, the Dido song that it's based on. I mean, he just interpolated that song and created a very well-known rap song over that song. What does the split look like on that? Well, he cleared it in advance. Right. No, of course he did. You pay less. You pay less if you do it. Yeah, but you can't. I mean, who's going to argue that Stan is not based on that song? It's like the, the chorus of that song is throughout the song. Words and music. And sound recording. It's it's yes. really, it's more than just the publishing side. You know, somebody got a sound recording. I don't know what the split was, but it would not shock me if she got 50% and her record label got 50% of the sound recording. So do you think that this problem is, or this issue is more prevalent today? Or is it less prevalent because the sophistication of the technology to detect it is better? Well, I think the sophistication of the technology makes it more prevalent. Why? Because it's so much easier to discover something that might be an infringement. Right. I mean, there, there's a website, and I don't really want to give them business. <laughs> I think it's called Who Sampled Who. And you put in any song, and, and they'll identify 10 songs that it sounds like. And so, Oh, my God. That's like a litigation machine. Yeah. So if you're a struggling artist and you type in your song, you could potentially have 10 people to sue. Well, we got a YouTube several years ago that compared Viva La Vida, the Coldplay's Grammy-winning song, 
to If I Could Fly by Joe Satriani. So somebody on YouTube did a side-by-side comparison, and he was right. And we hired a musicologist. And I mean, this is all public, because we sued Chris Martin and the boys, and settled nicely but it was you, you had to sue there. so that means you made a claim and they said f you and you sued it's funnier than that we filed the lawsuit after we made the claim they wouldn't accept service because they're in the uk and they think they're invisible i got harvey levin at tmz i'm sorry independently in good journalistic action harvey levin discovered that i was going to serve chris martin at the Grammys. And he made the story. And 10 minutes later, their lawyer called and said, we'll accept service of process. Amazing. That's great. Why didn't they just pay? Why did they fight it? Uh, I spent 12 hours in the Jams office in New York with Chris Martin. And mediation. And he was adamant that he didn't steal it. I mean, it sounded identical, but he was adamant. He was calling me a effing ambulance chaser and all this. But <laughs> the, the lawyers, I'm quite sure, told him to settle, but he was adamant. I get it. Listen, as an artist, he probably didn't think he sold, even if it was in his head, even if he had access to it and they were all sitting around listening to the song. Like, nobody wants to admit that they've taken something. I agree. Ed Sheeran just went to trial on yeah. this on this case because he's like, I don't want to, I'm a songwriter. I'm not taking everybody has similar sounding songs like it, it's got to be hard for these artists to admit that even if you didn't mean to, you probably infringed this work. You know, they say that today's music is built on the shoulders of yesterday's artists. It's true. This was the blurred lines disappointment to me. Pharrell Williams freely admitted he was inspired by Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up, loved yeah. Marvin Gaye. And wanted to write a song that sounded like Marvin Gaye. That was held against him by a jury, even though the notes were different. All right, Howard, this is a fascinating area of the law. I thank you for coming on to discuss. My pleasure. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, it is upon us. Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour. You and I went to the premiere last night. What'd you think? It was the only movie I've ever been to where people were actively standing up and dancing during the film. It was fun. We were in the theater with all of her dancers, the IMAX theater. And whenever somebody saw someone that they knew on the screen, they just started going nuts and screaming. It was very fun. And Taylor stopped by and personally thanked us. She said we were part of a core memory for her, which is a really nice thing for her to say. Yeah, it was great to see her. Apparently, she went to every single theater in the Grove that was premiering the film and spoke to everybody. Yeah. Once again, Taylor just doing everything she can for her fans, I which I actually genuinely respect. It's she, she never quits. All right, we are talking today about the box office. Lucas and I predicted on this very show a couple weeks ago, I said that it would open to 100 million domestic. He said 110 million domestic. We've had a couple of things that have changed the calculus. First of all, this was before her PR blitz and the Travis Kelsey nonsense that's been going on for the last two and a half weeks. And she announced on Wednesday afternoon that the movie is actually going to play on Thursday night in preview screenings and Friday afternoons for whatever theater wants to show it then. And that was not the case before. It was supposed to premiere only Friday at 6 p.m. and then go all weekend. So that is going to add significantly to the box office, I think. 
Do you think that was always in the plan, a, a late in the game announcement, or do you think that was an audible for some other reason? Listen, when it comes to Taylor Swift, I think there are no accidents and they're, everything okay. is scripted and planned out. I have been told by many people around the film that this was not the plan in advance and that they really were responding to demand. I think also they see the Barbie opening of 150-something, and they think they can beat Barbie. I don't know if it'll get all the way to there, but I am definitely upping my prediction. The over-under now, I think most tracking services are way off on this. NRG says 90 million domestic, which is a joke. It's going to get way beyond that. The ones I've seen that I believe are more around 110, 115. I'm taking the over. I think it's going to get to 125, possibly even 150 if the fans really mobilize and book those Thursday night screenings like I think they will. Yeah, I think you're right. People who haven't seen the movie, people who didn't have great seats when they went to the show, or even people who had great seats. I know a lot of people in my life who are going to see this movie this weekend. I know somebody who's going twice. You know, you and I have already seen the live show and we went. I mean, this it's definitely a different experience. It's much, you know, intimate. You see everything going on on stage in a way that most of us uh, could not when we were in the concert venue. Now, comparatively, all it has to do to be the top grossing concert film opening of all time is beat 41 million, which is the adjusted for inflation opening of the Justin Bieber movie like 12, 13 years ago. If it wants to get to the highest grossing concert film of all time, it's got to get to 380 million, which is the adjusted for inflation number of the Michael Jackson, This Is It documentary film that came out after he died. I think it has a chance to do more than 380. The wild card here will be overseas mm -hmm. because it is not tracking as well overseas. The opening this weekend globally outside of the U.S. could be about 60 million, according to the tracking. Um, again, it's all over the place. Nobody knows for sure. But that would put the total for global close to 200, like 180, if it comes in, is what we think it will, 180, 200. That's opening weekend. So we'd basically just have to double that to beat Michael Jackson. I think it's going to do it. And she's going to be at the Chiefs game tonight. How convenient the Chiefs are playing Thursday night football. The one time a year the Chiefs are playing on Thursday night. <laughs> She'll be at that game. There's going to be four oh. Ares film promos. We're so cynical. Big win for AMC. My buddy Adam Aaron, the CEO, yeah. although he had some bad press today. He got catfished. He got catfished. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to talk about that with uh, Lucas on the live show. But this is a win for AMC. If they do this for Taylor and then they have similar success with Beyonce, although probably not as big, um, it's a new template for them. So good for them. Good for Taylor. Wish everybody well. Good for Travis Kelsey. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Howard King. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. 